0: honest real feedback doesn't feel kind but it is mm. kind so if you are going ahead and thinking about career transitions you really need to find somebody who has all the right intentions but is not going to be nice to you we'll come back with real honest feedback i think we overly tend to over complicate things mm. in careers and lives if you have a few good questions to guide you and you find answers to that it's much easier to move fast
1: Hi everyone, and welcome to the Career Uninterrupted podcast, a place where we sit with some of the best and brightest minds to explore the changing landscape of careers and what this means for the future of work. I'm your host, Lochan Narayanan, founder and CEO of Off Experiences, a pioneering platform that equips and enables mid-career professionals to thrive through career transitions. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Career Uninterrupted. I'm your host, Lochan Narayanan, founder and CEO of Off Experiences. Our guest for today is Aditya Kulkarni. Aditya is a Bits Pilani and an IIM Bangalore alumnus, also the co-founder of Stoa. He has built and sold two startups in the past and is now building Stoa, which is also considered as the MBA for the startup ecosystem and alternate MBA program. So today with Aditya, we are going to explore the role of atypical paths to accelerate career pivots and career growth. Welcome Aditya. Thank you so much for taking time out and
0: being here. Thank you for having me, Lochan. It's a pleasure and I look forward to this conversation.
1: Fantastic. So before we jump into some like questions around careers, et cetera, why don't we hear a bit more about you, your journey? How has that come
0: about so I, I mean, it's been a while since I've worked for a corporate. So I mean, I mm-hmm. think that is the distinguishing thing. <laughs> about, because I've been an entrepreneur for ten years now. You know, two thousand thirteen is when I graduated from IIM Bangalore, mm. and in the last ten years, I held job for exactly one year. And but before I am, of course, I worked for a couple of years, uh, primarily with ZS Associates, and I think that was my first sort of experience of what great managers can do for you. I I think it was one of the best workplaces I could have asked for, you know, as my first job of software. So that taught me a lot. And then I was pretty much decided that I wanted to do something in education. So in my second year of college, I started learning outcomes. It was a B2B tech company back in Mm -hmm. 2013. Mm -hmm. And we primarily worked with schools to build analytics solutions for them to look at okay. their own assessment data. Built that company for two years, then we had a small exit, then started another B2C company this time in early parenting. And the thesis there was to use you know videos and photos to track health and education milestones for kids from zero okay. to five years. And that sort of proved to be very tricky. I mean... Primarily because we realize parents don't want that. <laughs> and uh, but yeah, the company was acquired by Round Glass. Okay. And then at Round Glass, I had a pretty interesting one year stint where I created India's first social emotional learning program, SEL program for it. Okay. And had the pleasure of actually working with one of J. Krishnamurti's students, you know. Wow. Uh, okay. And he had a pretty interesting story. He was actually the potter's son in Rishivar. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that is why he got to learn from uh, Ajit Du. And mm-hmm. then he had worked for 10 years writing this literature around, you know, all the emotions kids go through from the time they're 8 to like the time they're 17 and all that right. passage and how to deal with it. So we created a very interesting, you know, emotional well-being curriculum. And then I moved on from down glass and then went to, I think, a year-long sort of pivot after pivot of like mm-hmm. this idea that idea until sort of stoa happened and then mm. it's years since that
1: right so I have to ask you this question and because this popped up in my mind too and as I was discussing with my team that you know you're coming on the show as a guest and the first question they asked is please ask Aditya that you know he's followed a very you know, the traditional path of engineering and then MBA, but uh, STOA is set up as a, like an alternate MBA and it's for people who don't want to do MBAs. And I think you guys use the slogan that why should MBAs have all the fun kind of first space. So how does that happen? And how did that really come about? What was the thought process behind it? And uh, what was your own journey
0: as you were building this? Yeah, so this alternative MBA of sorts, right? Like, I think, of course, if you keep the marketing aside, like, MBA is not the enemy per se. But our core insight was there are a number of people who want business education, but they don't necessarily want an MBA mm-hmm. or the time and money commitment that comes with an MBA. So think of a Shopify store owner, right? Like, mm. who doesn't have formal business education, right? But they have started building a D2C brand or something like that. They are curious to know from an academic perspective, how to do brand right, Mm. or how to do inventory right. So that was Mm. our insight that there are a number of personas who want business education, but not necessarily MBA. So that is Mm. one aspect of the problem. The other aspect of the problem is there is also some supply side issue when it comes to good quality business education. I don't Mm. think there are more than Mm. maybe 15 institutions in the country at the moment who are really great at delivering good business education. Right, And our whole take or the alternative take was what if we bring people who are actually doing something or, you know, building something, mm. and have them teach. from So there. more like
1: practical hands-on experience yeah. coming in rather than the traditional academic background coming in.
0: Having said that, like both Raj, who is my co-founder and me, we have been exploring these alternative learning sort of ecosystems, mm. whether that is homeschooling, whether that is, you know. Gap years. Mm, So we mm. have spent a number of years sort of researching Mm. why do these things work? Why do they not work? Who do they Mm. work for? Mm. There is all, I mean, it's, I mean, I don't know why, but we have always found, I mean, even working with this person who learned from J. Krishnamurti, all of that also happened by happenstance, like Mm. uh, explored the homeschooling movement, the micro schooling movement in US. And Mm. yeah, I mean, we were always looking at. What are the other ways, right? And especially when the traditional systems don't work for a certain population, when it comes to their educational needs, right? What alternative systems could work, and how could they scale? So that was always an exploration. Sure.
1: So that's actually a very interesting point that you you've brought up to say that if I if I may say that India has been traditionally very. You know, do class 12, then, you know, do a graduation and a proper graduation, then preferably do master's and then start working category. The whole idea of gap years, the whole idea of doing like a different kind of an education system in any form comes with a lot of resistance because the first question they come in is that who's going to employ you? right? So what is the employability option, et cetera. So how are you seeing this entire landscape specifically when it comes to alternative modes of education or alternative forms of education? And I'm going to add that, you know, the business, like an executive MBA program always existed in some form. So how would you place that? Would, Would that be considered atypical, typical? And in that context, how do you look at the entire ecosystem? How is it responding both in terms of people's acceptance
0: and employability options, etc.? This answer requires a lot of, you know, sure. covering the landscape. I think executive MBA, let, let me start there. It has always existed, but it existed for a particular demographic, which is okay. you know, if you're closer to 30 or past 30, that is ah. where executive MBA sort of worked. Whereas with mm. Primarily we cater to people who are like 24 years plus minus. Mm. Like so the demographic is slightly different, right? Now coming to who does alternative forms of education work for, I don't think it works for if you come at it from a traditional mindset. Like mm. you know, if, if you because a lot of systems that typically would exist, let's say in traditional ecosystems, won't exist in alternative forms of learning. I mean, you are expected to put in a lot. You are expected to to be motivated. You need to be self-aware. Again, our approach was, hey, like, I don't want this to work for everyone. Like, I'm not... Correct. Then it becomes
1: (laughs) mainstream. Yeah, it becomes
0: mainstream. I'm sure that there is a 10%, 20%, I don't know, whatever percent of population which could benefit from this. And that is a large enough market to go after. Right. Right. That is our take, right? Like, we, in fact, like to be in a niche, you know, and we are also sort of... Continuously rediscovering what alternative means. When we started in pandemic, that alternate means placing an extraordinary focus on sense of belonging and community. Correct. Now it is becoming a lot more about how do we sort of deliver personalized feedback that allows people to sort of relook at it the way they approach. So mm. I mean, we are also peeling the layers in terms of what you know what this alternative really means.
1: So just a random question. So does Stoa look at class participation marks?
0: No. So see, the format is slightly tricky to pull off, right? Like it is online, it is Zoom. The class size is typically eighty-two hundred, And we don't have TAs who are like taking, sitting taking around. Set and, and taking, and notes.
1: taking notes. And that's why I was just asking. So do, you have, do you also take like class participation marks?
0: In fact, very interestingly, when we started, we were very anti-assessment. Right? Mm. Like, we did not have any assessment, I think, for the first year, year and like, you know, maybe two, three months of our existence. There were no assessments at STOA. And we only started bringing in assessments when uh, we started scaling. And that was more of an accountability measure. Right. And even then, you know, you would think if I have to bring in assessment, I would bring in a midterm, end term. Right. Our first attempt at bringing accountability was we will build a new form of exam, which is like a PhD-like defense. Hmm. So. The first iteration of assessment we had was, hey, you do this work for a month or so, put in 50 Mm. hours of effort, then go and defend your work in front of two hiring Mm. managers. And then, of course, you know, that is harder bit to pull off. Then now we have more formal assessments, more assignments, all of that. Got it. Understood.
1: So you specifically said that it works, or rather most of your students are... And I'm using the word students because from a learning lens are typically 24 to, I would say, you know, maybe 23 to about 28, 29 kind of an age group, really. So are they coming in looking to pivot from what they have done already? Because they would have typically done a graduation of some sorts. So are they coming in with a lens that I want to pivot and do something completely different from what I did in my graduation? Or are they coming in just... Thinking that, okay, this is just going to be an additional piece while I'm already working. What kind of demographics are these and how are they, you know, what kind of trends are you observing in these groups?
0: It's, it has been very tricky to sort of define or like, you know, have a consistent answer. Okay. Primarily because I think MBA or alternative MBA in that mat- for that matter is catch all for many different mm. diverse needs. You know, uh, somebody might come to STOA because they're feeling stuck at work. Somebody mm. might come to STOA because they feel they don't have clarity, like, you know, where to take their career. Mm. Some people will come to STOA because they see themselves as founders and want to prepare themselves for that journey. I mean, even mm. if not in a short term, they do look at themselves as founders in the mm. long term. longer term. So there are all sorts of diverse needs or triggers or like, you know, that bring people to STOA. Our approach has been, and we are increasingly refining that approach, is irrespective of what people want, what they normally need is a sounding board, you know, mm. and that sounding board can come in the form of a coach. So we do mm. pay for one-to-one coaching. It's right. That yeah. sounding board can come from somebody within the community, you know, some other mm-hmm. cohort member. Right. and another it could come from the facilitators who are coming in delivering mm-hmm. these sessions and if we can help people relook at their process their approach to work or mm-hmm. how do they work and mm-hmm. uh, are they thinking in a i mean i see this like career is a vector right like speed matters but the direction also matters also matters yeah absolutely <laughs> um mm-hmm. i mean it is much easier to work with folks who have some transferable skills
2: mm-hmm. and
0: then sort of provide them guardrails, hmm. direction, you know, all the support that they need to right. kind of accelerate than a pure transition kind of like, you know, hey, I was doing something and let me just leave it all back and mm-hmm. just do something. And, new. Okay.
1: So I, the reason I picked this, you know, the typical MBA journey and most people who think of doing an MBA coming, come from a space of saying, you know what, I am an engineer, I was doing software Quote, I don't want to do this anymore. What do I do? Let me go ahead and do an MBA. And that's where you know the journey kind of begins or ends in some sense. But even with you, you're saying it's not a complete cut of saying, I'm going to do something completely new, which I've never done before, or learn something completely different, which I have no idea about. But it has to kind of be something adjacent to what they're already doing. Uh, which helps them grow further. Is that what you're seeing? Most of you, most of your students come in for and come in with
0: no. So our advice is it is good to have stretch goal, right? Like, so for okay. example, you are in a sales role today and you want to move to a product role. That's a good ambition to have, but it is not going to be linear journey. out. Right. So you might make a move from let's say sales to product marketing and from product marketing to product management. Mm. That is a more evolution. So let us focus on the first step. Like we will get, get okay. the first step up. Got it. towards What's the ultimate stretch goal? Mm. But normally we haven't seen like, you know, for example, a software engineer becoming a marketer. I mean, that, by the way, that has happened in store. But the way I also look at, or we also look at careers and we, I think we have written an article about this. Is we don't look at careers as ladders. But you look at them at jungle gyms, Mm. right? So you might have to go sideways. You might have to go up. Sometimes you might have to come down because Mm. ultimately you want to reach where uh, you are. So I I think that is the analogy, right? And then we have to contextualize this advice to each individual case. Mm. Um, We have seen all sorts of transition, like, you know, even hard transitions happen. Mm. But I would say those are rare. So I don't think those transitions are also like, it is a myth about MBA that like, you know, all sorts of hard transitions happen through MBA. Mm. Uh, of course, with freshers, because the traditional MBA in India has a lot of freshers. Yeah. Those people don't come in with any baggage. <laughs> and some of the, you know, consulting firms, some of the banking, some of the FMCGs actually prefer to take in freshers and groom mm. them into, you know, their culture and so on and so forth. So mm. what I understand is MBA is a black box to many people. People don't understand what goes through it. The the nuances of like, you know, mm. what MD can actually do for you.
1: Understood. So, you know, so this brings me to a point in saying that when you see truck in some ways as an accelerator, rather than just a pure hard transition space, more like the, you know, helping them figure out, do they need to take a side step or a diagonal step up or a diagonal step down as a first step and not necessarily help them land at the top of the, you know, I call this a rock climbing wall. So top of the, you know, hill or the mountain that you're doing. So on the other side, you do also have career services and, and, you know, we have seen a lot of startup, you know, well-known startup founders also associate with you. So how do the organizations look at these candidates, how do, how does the industry look at it? Are startups more pliable and more amenable to them? Or are, are you seeing this also with corporates I mean, large corporates in some sense? How is it coming about?
0: So if we haven't really worked with large corporates. I mean, okay. the challenge that we see, or, or rather, let me tell you where we have been very successful. We have been mm-hmm. very successful working with early stage up to series A, series B kind of startups okay because oftentimes it is much easier for us to reach out to the founder or actual mm. hiring manager and mm. just say hey like i saw you're hiring for this role and this person has been through the program and they have, mm. here is their proof of work and mm. you know they're happy to do an assignment before mm. you judge them based their resume right. or something like that and that works pretty well because we can reach the decision maker much faster okay typically when there are layers of decisions you know this or when an organization is typically likely to receive a number of applications, mm. then they would follow the typical, like, you no know, ATS filtering and mm. uh, all of mm. that thing. So mm. we've been very successful where, and by the way, some of these candidates are great value for money. I mean, I don't want to put it that way, but they might be as competent as, like, you know, tier one or tier two MBA graduates. Yeah, I'm sure. It will yeah. be much more expensive to hire. I mean, you know, you might, for example, you might find somebody from IIM Indore or Kori Kod coming in for twenty-five lakhs, mm. and some of these candidates are as competent, but they'll probably come for fifteen to eighteen lakhs. So it's a great cost-saving sort of thing. But it's—I mean—the education, all of that—you know—it's—it's it's a long journey. I don't think three years is a long enough time to have made that uh, sort of progress. But I do believe in over next t- ten years, we—I mean—as an organization, we will. I mean, we are now seriously looking at you know how do we educate on the supply side more. I mean, we have been very B two C brand. If you see Stoa's right personality, the co founding teams' personality, it has been very like you know consumer
1: mm-hmm.
0: kind of mm-hmm. thing. We are getting institutionalized. I mean, <laughs> that, is the, <laughs> that is the way to put it.
1: Okay. Right, right. No, that's um, I I think that's an interesting piece, and and a lot of times when we talk to organizations specifically for people like, you know, people who've taken breaks and are coming back, etc., we also use a similar line saying that, you know what, you may, this person's equally competent and because they've taken a certain break, usually the compensation at which they are coming in is different from what you would otherwise get for somebody uh, in the market and so on. And they're equally good. So why not, Look at that and look at that space. I know that's not the best pitch, you know, the, the in some sense, but like you rightly said, they're also good value for money. And I think especially startups like to grab that such resources very quickly because you're always uh, bootstrapped, cash tra- <laughs> trapped and so on. And, and you definitely want the best talent there for sure.
0: Just one nuance there, right? And I think what o- happens as organizations... Grow in size mm. is the hiring decisions oftentimes are never about the upside, but about protecting the downside. Correct. Yeah. And I mean, it is difficult to get people out of that mindset.
2: Well, yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, a talent acquisition manager is not necessarily, and I, I know I might get some brickbats for this, is not necessarily optimizing for the upside on the candidate. Yeah. It's oftentimes say like, I don't want this person, like, you know, three months down the line, I don't want to be hiring for this role again. So let's, let me eliminate, you know, all
1: possible potential risks that I see. Let me just keep all of that out and let me go with the trend, which is most acceptable, which my hiring managers will not question me about. And, and it's a classical, you know, CYA activity as we, as we go about doing it. So are you seeing a change in the, in this kind of mindset happening or is it still you know where we had left corporates about like few few years ago is it still there is there a shift that you're noticing or seeing
0: in your experience? I think it is too early to say to be very okay, honest sure. I would say this would take out like at least 10 years to play out mm. because you know you also need success stories you need those hero outcomes like you know somebody mm. did go went through this program and they did not choose the traditional MBA and they still made to a VP or a CXO position so right. So that, that takes really long uh mm. to lay out right uh, but i think what is also interestingly happening on the talent side is a lot more people are questioning the roi on some of mm. these decisions mm. i don't think those questions are there about the top institutions but those questions are as i said like you no know, if you go beyond the top 15 institutions the questions of right. And I just don't mean in terms of money. I also mean it in terms of time, mm. committing two years. And could you be actually investing in up, upskilling yourself by working, mm. sparking yourself in an academic environment? So I think those questions are being asked uh, by some people. And mm. that's a that's a good thing. And But I still think it will stay niche. It is never going to go mainstream. Mm. And it will never go mainstream primarily because of how our primary, secondary, undergrad education Education sense.
1: is, huh? yeah. I mean, if, if you're
0: being used to spoon feeding for like, you know, 18 years of your life, it is it's unlikely. It's tough to
1: change. So, you know, recently, especially during the pandemic, I was seeing a lot of like flatter and social media where people were getting up and saying, what's the point of a college degree? If a college degree is only to get you a job, I already have a job. I am already working at XYZ place. What's the point of a college degree? Why are we studying, etc.?" And I think it also happened a lot more because it was the pandemic and people were doing like online classes and virtual college, which I really feel bad about, you know, the college is never supposed to be virtual in some but, is have have you like? But I'm not hearing much either. I'm not seeing it much, or that chatter is not happening much. Is is that how you are also seeing this, or or is that a question that's being asked more and more now, post the pandemic, or was it just a pandemic phenomena?
0: No, I think sort of overturned window of the times was like you know college degree, and I, I think those conversations people still have those questions and so on and so forth. It's just not the popular. Narrative at the moment, right? Like you mm. moved on to better things, maybe. I don't know. But to me, see, college is not just about like you know, your job and a degree, and yeah, it is right of passage in mm. some ways, right? Like undergrad, especially, right? Like you go through so much when I mean, you enter mm. when you're 17, 18, you have your first heartbreak, your first experience of living all by yourself. Right. And in some sense, even the traditional MBA is a rite of passage. Like, you know, mm. you've worked for a couple of years. And you're really not sure whether you're liking what you're doing, and so on and so forth. You MBA is a great excuse to park yourself, you know, for a year or two and say, Hey, let me sort of think through. I mean figure myself out. Yeah. Yeah. The sad part is most people take that two-year and then still don't figure stuff out. Mm. (laughs) That that is the sad part of uh, it. so I think education or especially full-time education serves a number of needs which are not apparent Mm. Uh, it it is about friendships relationships uh, dealing with your emotions building clarity there is so much more Mm. and that is also one of the reasons I don't think the traditional degree will not go away Uh, also I think degree is a great broker Mm. between talent and opportunity right like Mm. I mean I don't think organizations at every point are going to say, hey, like, let me figure out what is the great signal to hire for. Yeah. yeah. When there is an established system where you can just say, hey, like, okay, CFA level three, or somebody has done like some some signal has been built, some broker is already there. So I can Mm -hmm. just go and hire in a finance role if this person is a CFA level three or something like that.
1: And I remember having this conversation with um, someone who had joined our team, and he had dropped out of college, and he kept asking me. And, and the one thing I kept saying is, you know, whatever said or done, you work here, you do, you know, whether you're doing online or distance, I do. But complete that degree, because. Um, and he would keep arguing with me, saying, "What's the point?" And I already have a job. And I, I said, "It's not about the job, because today I'm hiring, but tomorrow there will be so many of you standing." with your resumes with similar experiences, the easiest decision for a talent acquisition person or a hiring manager is to say, Oh, okay. These five people have degrees. Let me look at them. Someone has done the vetting for me. Somebody has done some form of assessment for me and put them through it. So why, you know, at least they'll be slightly better than others. You know, is that. so? Uh, I, I actually have a different
0: perspective here. I think okay. the sole reason you should have degree is because you're going to apply for visas in like in <laughs> And you probably need an <laughs> undergrad one if you want to go <laughs> to US or something mm. like that. I think this resume part, right? And I don't think as an organization we're there. But what people need to understand is if you're going to compete right, mm. in the marketplace, then you need differentiation just like organizations do. Right. And it is for an individual to answer rather where their differentiation comes from for some that differentiation might come from going to top tier institutes because they are great at writing exams cracking them and all of that right so oh i am from IIM or isb
2: mm. would
0: be one way people differentiate themselves but if you're not able to play that game then you need to figure out how you can play this like you know what makes you differentiated in the marketplace? Mm. Mm. for example one technique that i've seen very few people are successful at in india especially but a lot more in US is writing on the internet. Like it is yeah. such a great way of going about establishing that you are an expert, you understand this, you're thoughtful and you can write about it right now. So that that is one way. So I think it is for every individual to answer how mm-hmm. they can play this game in such a way that the system actually works for them. Right. So it could be writing on the internet, It could be actually going ahead and doing like a lot of primary and secondary research before Mm. you apply to a job and like summarizing your uh, notes and sending it to the hiring manager. It could be your ability to get referrals Mm. within organizations. Mm. So there are so many different ways in which you can build a differentiated approach to crack like better and better opportunities. Mm. The problem is, again, I mean, it just boils down to like you know, some generic advice that people pick off internet saying, oh, write cold emails this way. So write cold emails. But what makes for a great cold email? And maybe right. cold email is not the way. The cold assignment is the way, right? Like right. You go and do the assignment without somebody asking you for it. So I think people can, like if they don't understand what is going to differentiate them, then they definitely need the degree.
1: Right, yeah. to go yeah. through
0: the resume process.
1: So I think you've touched on a very important point and we keep talking about it, harping on it to say that how are you doing your a how are you differentiating yourself in the market and it also boils down to how you're doing your job search so we we have an open position right now and we've got some 200 applicants and i can tell you 195 of them have sent me let's say dms the dms are exactly the same it, you know linkedin has this some standard template that they seem to all use And it's so weird because somebody had not changed their LinkedIn header and their header just said student. So the message said, uh, with my experience as a student, I think I will contribute greatly to this role or something like that. And I said, at least, you know, take five minutes to just edit that and say what your experience has been and what it has been and so on. And the five who bothered to let's say, send a slightly different DM and a cold DM, I have actually, you know, first line, I said, okay, let's at least talk to these guys, you know, before we look at the others. So that's a very, very important point that you've picked up to say, how do you differentiate yourself? So this is a question I'm going to say that when people are thinking about mid-career or career transitions in general, or career switches or, and this classic question comes in, I'm stuck, where do I go from here? And that stuck could come from a space of saying, I don't enjoy what I'm doing. What, what else can I do? Or I really want to grow, but I don't know how to grow. My organization either is not supporting me or is not able to give me the right growth. Not everybody is is able to give you that. So how do I you know, grow that? So when people are thinking on these lines, what are some of the things that they should actively do? before they jump on that wagon of saying, okay, I'm now going to change my path and you know, what are the couple of things that they should be actively thinking or doing
0: before they jump on this? I think to me, the first important step is asking yourself a few critical questions Mm -hmm. and writing down answers to those questions very deliberately. So I, I now ask this question of almost everybody I meet who talks about a career acceleration or transition, which is, can you tell me what are you good at? And if you've not found an answer to that, you need to go and find an answer to that question Mm. first. So you might Mm. go and upskill yourself, do some course, do some side project. I don't know. But unless you have an answer to what are you good at? And again, people have such boilerplate answers to this. I'm good at problem solving. I'm good at storytelling. I'm good at like conversing with people. And to me, those are just bullshit answers, right? Because Mm. who in the market says they're bad at problem solving? Everybody is good at problem solving. (laughs) So when you have to be very specific at mm. saying, hey, like I can help companies in this particular industry do mm. Y, mm. right? Like, so in industry X, companies do Y. Like, so the answer mm. has to be really specific. Yeah. And if you have not, if you don't have an answer, you actually have a bigger problem. I mean, there is no point in trying to go and like, you know, apply to jobs and whatnot, unless you've found an answer to this. You need a good answer to this. What are you good at? The second question, then, that you need to answer is who actually in the market values this? Yeah. This approach is if I'm now looking at career acceleration or whatever transition acceleration, whatever you call it, I'm just going to go on LinkedIn, see what is open, easy apply, easy, easy, apply, easy apply, 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 yeah? apply. <laughs> Okay, what are the five? And like, you know, I've seen this. I, I was talking to this girl from iim She reached out on LinkedIn and she said, I need help and this and that. So said, can you tell me five companies you're interested in who will value your skills? And then she sent me, first, she sent me the list of industries that like FinTech, this, this, this. I said, no, can you tell Um, me five organizations? Then she sent me a list of 15 organizations. I said, no, not 15, five. And it took me like, you know, at least two, three days of just that text back and forth. Before she said, these are the five organizations. And then I said, if these are the five organizations, and if they have open roles for the skill that, you know, you can use to uh, blah, blah, blah. Now, let's just pick one organization and figure out how will you make a case for them to say, like, you know, you're better than all those candidates who are applying using their resumes and stuff like that. So what are you good at? Second question, who values this skill? And again, like very specific five companies, three companies, and maybe those five companies won't hire, you, but then you go to the next five and next five, right? Get so it is a yeah. iterative sort of process. And I think it is also about interview prep. Like a lot of people, they're good at doing the job, but cracking interview and being good at a particular job are two entirely different things. Different things, yeah, correct. I think these fundamentals is where people mostly lack, Mm. right? Like they directly jump the gun on let me apply to this and let Mm. me interview Mm. and then Mm. get frustrated when ATS filters them out (laughs) and so on and so forth. But if they just ask themselves these questions, what am I good at? And very specific answer Because then it establishes your niche, it establishes Mm. your differentiation, that you're only going to apply to companies within this industry who have these kind of roles. And then very consciously choosing where to apply rather than, you know, a spray and pray approach, (laughs) a very targeted, you know, approach. And what might happen in that process is the first hiring manager you write to may not hire you because, you know, they might find a better candidate, so on and so forth. But they'll probably remember you yeah. and refer you to someone else saying, yeah. oh, like, you know, somebody had sent me this assignment. Yeah. And I think that person might be a good candidate for you.
1: So this is reminding me of a, of a client, a coaching client of mine who, she made a switch across countries because she wanted to kind of move into something which is a more global role, et cetera, et cetera, kind of thing. And uh, this is the approach she took six months to really think through, A, shortlist which which countries she wanted to get into, why, what kind of industries, you know, would she want to get into, given her current experience, given her strengths, given her areas of work and interest. You know, okay, these are places that I don't have experience today, but I want to pick that up as well. And within that, she, you know, shortlisted, same thing, about five companies and, and found out who are the right people, reached out to them, et cetera, and, it took her six to eight months and it took a lot of hard work. So I wouldn't completely take that away at all. And a lot of people just think job search is an easy process in some sense, especially when you are, you know, if you're transitioning, if you're switching from, if you're just becoming manager customer service to manager customer service, maybe it's, slightly easier but if you're trying to switch from even from customer service to customer success I think it starts to make a little bit of a difference in how you how you approach this that's a great thought thank you so much and 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 I'm feeling very happy that you know my you know some of these ideas are resonating with me as well and and we keep talking about these so switching a little from this lens I know this person who reached out to you She found somebody and you took time out to answer her questions and so on. And I think that's one thing a lot of people do struggle with. They don't know who can help them in the process. In-store, you do offer coaching as one of the offerings or one of the support systems. So what is the role of coaching or I'm, I'm going to kind of club them in some lens coaching and mentoring i know they're two different things but what is the role of coaching or mentoring in this entire journey and in this entire process how have you seen your students respond to coaching
0: and take that up so for us coaching is very simple about building clarity right like that is how people we encourage people to use coaching within store and our mandate to the coaches is also that as long as this person has some clear idea about where they are headed then it is much easier for our career services to take over and say, how do we make this person uh, reach there? And when it comes to mentoring within STOA, that that is specifically about a particular job role, right? Like now that you have clarity about Mm. this might be the role you want to sort of go towards. Then let us speak to somebody who's already in that role and understand from them what it will take and Mm. what's day to day look like and how will you make a case for that job, so on and so forth. What is also surprising to me in that journey is it it is how hard, like, you know, allow you to help them, like how Mm -hmm. hard oftentimes people make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this career you spoke about this six month sort of process right mm-hmm. like unless you start with that mindset that this is going to take about 200 hours or like you know, 50 mm-hmm. hours of effort and i am going to put in that effort if i want the best result out of this the problem is people apply to like two three roles they get rejected once or twice and the the motivation it goes from, down yeah I mean, it's almost like film production, right? Like 80% of a film's work is done in pre-production where you Mm. work on the script, you work on like, you know, location recce, you understand what camera angles are going to be. But when you go to the, on the set, I mean, you are on, I mean, that is much more expensive. Correct. So I think the career transitions are that way, but a lot of people don't understand like, you know, why coaching is important, why mentoring is important, why getting your resume right, your LinkedIn right, Doing behavioral interviews, doing guesstimate interviews, all of that is ultimately towards so that when you appear for those five interviews, you're able to crack it very easily. By the way, I also have a counter example. There's so many of my friends who are like my peers Mm. and they have spent like 10 years, they're making like really bonkers, you know, crazy amount of money. And they would have this conversation saying, I'm thinking through next steps and I'm not clear and this and that. And I would advise them, why don't you go and talk to a coach? And I would make the introduction mm. and uh, they would go have the discovery call and say, it is too expensive. Mm. Come on, if you're making like you know north of 100K a year mm. for four sessions, somebody's asking you for 50K, that's not expensive. That's yeah. cheap. Yeah. I mean, if it gives you the direction, if it allows you to find a better opportunity, what's 50K in... Mm. it's nothing yeah but just that like i think people don't understand that what coaching can do for them in general i have seen that that's another take right like even mature professionals how they don't understand what that 50k in like four or five months can do for them
1: and uh i mean i i hear that a lot because people because i work as a coach lot of people who come and say, Hey, you know, you're working as a coach. Can you coach me? I'm like, I can, but, uh, you know, I, I do have a fee, and I, I do charge. No, no. Why can't you do this over? Like I'll buy you a drink. I'll buy. I said, no, that's, I said, do you want me as a coach or do you want me just as a friend, you know, generally giving you advice because I can play both roles depends and both have a certain you know time cost to it and have different outcomes what do you want do you want a professional or do you want a friend who's just giving you advice and that's a and you've brought out a very you know important point to say that despite the fact that there is a general growing you know dissonance or discontent with what people are doing in their work with their roles and so on People still don't look at coaching or even for that matter, mentoring as a professional service space that you that they could, you know, leverage or use, especially if you have the means to do it. But is that something you're seeing as a change or is it still like, you know, it's still going to take some
0: time to get there? I think it is still a niche, right? Like within India, coaching I mean, people's expectation is organization should pay for it. Mm. Sure. But if org is not playing for it, like, are you going to forever wait?
2: Mm. And
0: I mean, there are two ways to look at it, right? Like you can either spend this 50K, 60K, whatever that amount is, or you can allow life to slap you. Like, you know, mm. what, what do you prefer? Right? Like, I mean, mm. if you're feeling <laughs> stuck and you're not growing your skills, I mean, sure. I mean, at some point you're going to get slapped. Yeah. So uh, you might as well do the coaching. And what I've realized is, you know, like nice words, don't work like you really have to give it straight to people saying yeah. this is the worst that can happen. I mean, this is it. I mean, coaching in some sense is selling insurance, right? Like, mm. people don't understand why it is needed until, like, you know, they're really faced with a terrible sort of situation. That mm-hmm. is my take on it, but I do think, like, you know, a lot more people are uh, sort of open to uh, that possibility, or at least you have started hearing that word more a lot more. in conversation. And yeah. I think one of the reasons people also discount it as a professional service is because they think coach will do what their friend does. Yeah, yeah, correct. Which is not true, right? Like your friend is not professionally trained to listen to you. Correct.
1: So in your work, and I know from a professional standpoint, and I, and I also gathered even from a personal spaces, a lot of support that you're doing to people. And we call them mid-career transitioners, but I would also like to generally call it into an umbrella space of saying either atypical talent or people accelerating, pivoting, all of that. So apart from Stoa, what other things that you do that, you know, kind of normalizes the space or makes it more acceptable makes it more okay. Uh, for people to be rethinking their careers or you know making those switches to that help them move up or even like like you said even making those lateral moves or diagonally downward moves that can actually help them move up. So what else are you doing
0: in this space? So I think even if somebody's not joining the program, we write this daily newsletter called uh, Stoa Daily. I think it has fantastic Mm -hmm. advice on how to look at careers and how to be in the right mean. uh, and we have been writing it for a year now. So it's about Mm -hmm. Four hundred articles, and I think it is an excellent resource, and it's free. Daily People should read it. And I mean that—that's we write a lot. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that apart from, oh, so we write on LinkedIn, we write on uh, the newsletter. Yeah. To be very honest, there isn't much time left <laughs> after <laughs> uh, I have all a, of this. <laughs> yeah, I have a three-year-old, so that is ah, one okay. One. And he's as old as Noah, so it's like you know, both of them are sort of grown together. So there isn't much time left, really.
1: Yeah, so so great. So early parent, new parent in in some sense, young parent in that sense, I know the challenge that a young parent could be be having. Just, you know, my last question rather, second last question rather. In general, when we start to think about generally the whole career landscape has shifted, you know, corporates, what we started out like 20 years ago and said, okay, this is how you will be, you will be, assistant sales manager, manager, you know, VP of sales, and this is how you will go and grow and retire, maybe change two companies, three companies at max. It's completely shifted for different reasons, for not just individual reasons, but the industry is shifting, technology is changing, world is changing, all of those. So what, what do you think is really needed in this ecosystem, you know, to support more and more people as they are navigating through their careers and shifting? And, and Remove maybe the the 100% dependence on the companies doing that because sometimes it may be in conflict with what the company wants and what the individual wants. So what else can be done
0: or what else is needed in this ecosystem? I think especially from an individual lens, I think the faster people move, stop thinking about titles, rather, the faster mm-hmm. they stop thinking about titles, right? Like the easier it gets. I mean, that is my whole take on that thing right like if you are saying hey i'm an assistant sales manager and now i want to be sales manager right you're not really asking the right question because see ultimately title is an abstraction of what you're doing and who you are doing it for and like you know are you really good at it and so on so i I think if you remove the title and go back to the fundamental questions which is again like what am i good at who Mm. values it Mm. and how can i keep getting better at my craft Mm. right like I think so many, so few people ask themselves that question, Mm. which is like, if this is a job that I'm doing, and like, you know, do I keep getting better at it? The focus is so much on, let me get the next raise and next appraisal Mm. without thinking that the next appraisal or next jump is going to come from... In fact, I started using this analogy very recently. If you think of yourself as an economic asset or a stock, Right. And you think of your stock price or compensation. Now, the stock price can be calculated in two ways. One is the technical analysis, right? So you look at what was the past data, what was the trend, Mm. what is this person's degree, where have they worked, Mm. what was their last compensation? And you draw a line and an HR would draw a line saying, oh, if I hire this person, I'm going to give them a 20% hike or whatnot. Right. And then there is fundamental analysis. So the technical analysis part, I think that is where most people are stuck, which is, you know, this is my trend line and this is where I'm headed. But the fundamental analysis, if you look at from that viewpoint, if something fundamentally changes about you, it could be the way you communicate. It could be the way you solve customer problems. It could be the way you write. It could be the way you work with other people within the organization. Any fundamental change can actually take your stock price somewhere else. Purely in analogic terms, Mm. like think more about fundamental analysis of yourself as an economic asset Mm. rather than the technical analysis in terms of what is your trend line and Mm. just being restricted by that possibility. So that is one, right? Like beyond titles, more about fundamental analysis of yourself as a stock price. And the last thing, and because I hear this so much is... And I think someone from my organization read some, somewhere and they said, it, it is very beautiful, which is oftentimes people come and say, Hey, like I have this imposter syndrome or whatnot. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, to that now my answer is, I mean, you have to be successful before you have a sim- imposter syndrome. <laughs> so <laughs> if you are not, yeah, better stop making it an excuse because right. I, I mean, you achieve something and then you think, did I really deserve this? Yeah. But when you have not had success, Like thinking that, oh, I'm an imposter. It just like, you know, it actually makes you an imposter. So I think getting over your own, you know, vortex of thoughts around like, you know, just overanalyzing. If you stop doing that, it becomes much easier to think very clearly, very rationally about how how you Mm. progress.
1: Awesome. I know that I really like that because a lot of people do come and say that I'm going to I'm going to pick this and give you credit for it. So, you know, the imposter syndrome should come in only once you're successful, once you reach that height and say, okay did I achieve this rather than, you know, make that as a roadblock and say, no, no, I'm not sure. Last thoughts as... Not last thoughts, but last thoughts for the show. Um, You know, what would you like to, let's say, leave our listeners with who are listening in to understand how they can rethink their careers, they can accelerate their careers. What would you like to leave as a parting note for them?
0: I think we wrote about this in uh, one of the in Daily articles. And, mm-hmm. uh, and the article is called Seven Career Truths You Will Realize Really Late. And one of the truths in that was... Honest, real feedback doesn't feel kind, but it is mm. kind. So if you are going ahead and thinking about career transitions, you really need to find somebody who has all the right intentions, but is not going to be nice to you. will come back with real, honest feedback, you know, and seek that person. If you can find mm. that person, life becomes, mm. I mean, career becomes much easier. Life becomes much easier. And uh, simplify, I think we overly tend to overcomplicate things mm. in careers and lives. If you have a few good questions to guide you and you find answers to that, it's much easier to move fast.
1: Great. Awesome. Those are, that's actually a good, very, very good thought. And that's also got me thinking a little on saying, okay, who are those people for me as well? This is amazing. This was a great conversation, Aditya. Thank you so much. And I really feel glad that I actually did ask you to be a guest. I think a lot of what you just spoke also resonated also are things that we tell our uh, participants we tell our clients as well that this is how you know you should be looking at it so it just feels good to hear that as well and get echoed but thank you once again for um you know for taking time out and for being here and all the best for all the new things that you're doing at STOA. so all the
0: best for that as well thank you for inviting me lochan this was a great conversation Career Uninterrupted Podcast is brought to you by Off Experience, a pioneering platform that equips and enables mid-career professionals to thrive through career transitions across life stages.